and chapter 24. We are reflecting this morning on verses 36 to 43 as we are coming close to the end of this beautiful gospel that Luke has been pleased to write for the benefit of the church. Again, we are looking specifically at Resurrection Day and the happenings that continue to occur with God's people. Before we read, let's ask the Lord to minister to us through His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do plead for the help of Your Holy Spirit to understand Your eternal truth. Would You take Your truth, open our eyes to it, and would You press it closely to our hearts that we would believe the words that You have spoken and we would be changed by the power of Your Holy Word. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Again, we're in Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, or we would say perhaps a ghost. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Well, this is God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Approximately two years before Jesus' resurrection day, After Jesus had multiplied bread and fish for 5,000 and had sent the disciples away in a boat because the people were clamoring to make Jesus a king, a really strange event took place. Jesus was on the mountain praying, but His disciples were in the Sea of Galilee struggling all night against high winds. And about the fourth watch of the night, which would put this sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water. Now, the disciples, like any sensible humans, know that men do not walk on water. No mere man has that power. So when they saw this shadowy figure in the distance making his footpaths on the waves, they cried out. I think the translation is telling us they shrieked like scared little girls. And not only that, they concluded that it was a ghost. Now during this time, Jewish seafarers and others had all kinds of superstitions about evil spirits coming out of the water. And if you're interested, there was actually a a mantra you could say. You take the paddle and you hit the wave and the paddle has the divine name on it. You say something about Yah casting out spirits and whatnot. We don't know if the disciples are superstitious and caught up in that. 
But a ghost was the only explanation they could come up with to make sense of the supernatural. And something similar, I think, is happening in our text. Yes, it's true. The disciples had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. The widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, their friend Lazarus. But that's not normal. It did not cultivate in them an expectation of death's power being broken. In fact, even after all the discussion about Jesus appearing to various people, Jesus being alive, the believers in this gathered little group are still not expecting a resurrection. Their first response to the risen Christ is totally unflattering and downright silly. They think He is a ghost, a spirit, in the form of Jesus, perhaps. <clears throat> it's a strange conclusion. But they're trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense. And knowing that many in the first century are actually starting to pitch this idea that Jesus only seemed to be human, that Jesus only appeared to have a resurrected body. Luke makes it a point to stress to us this is not a ghost story. This is a real, substantial, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And after meeting with His people, we learn several things as we unpack the text before us. I want you to note three things as we make our way through the passage. First, see with me Jesus' appearance and greeting. Jesus' appearance and greeting. Now, to say that this first Lord's Day was eventful seems to be a profound understatement. How can we capture the soul-thrilling, mind-spinning, joy-inducing stuff that has happened in the last 24 hours? When we read in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, we're being told that they were continuing to discuss the miraculous encounters with Christ throughout the day. And the latest story was Cleopas and his friend who met Jesus, although they didn't know it was Jesus, on the road to Emmaus. And they sat with Jesus and He broke bread and then their eyes were opened to the truth. That was, in fact, the fourth appearance on this same day. <clears throat> Mary had seen Jesus. The women going away from the tomb had seen Jesus. And then, wonder of wonders... The Lord had appeared to Simon Peter. You see that up in verse 34. You remember Peter's last image of Christ came the moment he denied Jesus for the third time. It was then that Jesus was being moved in between his trials and he caught Peter's eye. And that look from the Lord was devastating as it broke Peter's pattern of sin and it brought tremendous conviction. Can you even begin to imagine how hard things have been for Peter over the last three days. He had to live with himself. We all know the withering feeling of failing the Lord spectacularly and the guilt that assaults us. We know in those moments how the devil leaps into action to accuse us and to tell us there's no way back to Christ for you. The Lord will never receive such a miserable failure. On top of that, 
Peter didn't remember the words of, of Jesus about the resurrection. And the melancholy in this man's soul must have been immense. But then there was word of an empty tomb, of angels saying Jesus was alive, and there were reports of His appearances to the women. And then, wonder of wonders, Jesus actually appeared to Peter. The appearance is so stunning. It's codified in the creed of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and He was buried. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures and He appeared to Cephas, Greek word for Peter. He appeared to Peter. Everyone is reeling over these things. They're discussing their amazement. The What has happened here appears too good to be true. And then as the conversations kind of pile on top of each other at the close of this first Lord's Day, we read verse 36, Jesus Himself, emphatic, stood among them. It's really Jesus, Luke is telling you. Jesus Himself. This is not a, a case of mistaken identity. This is not a hopeful sighting of Jesus like some people seem to see Elvis everywhere. Jesus is really there. Now, John 20, verse 19 records, I think, the same appearance, and it stresses that on this particular evening, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were gathered for fear of the Jews. And nevertheless, Jesus came and He stood among them. Now, we saw in the revelation of Christ to Cleopas and his friend at Emmaus that Jesus had just vanished. As soon as they recognized it was Jesus, He is gone. And now, Jesus just appears. There was no knock at the door, no, what's the password? Because I'm telling you, you were not getting in this room unless you were a trusted follower of the Lord. They were careful about watching the door. They're scared to death. Everyone is afraid right now. Who knows what the Jews will do to the followers of Jesus? No one goes over the door. No one flings the doors open. Suddenly, Jesus is just standing right there. Clearly, brethren, His glorified body is capable of moving, appearing and disappearing in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. Now, apart from the fear that's associated with His appearance, more on that in a minute, Let's recognize the uniqueness of this now fifth appearance of Jesus on Resurrection Day. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out how Jesus appeared in the morning, how He preached in the late morning into the afternoon. Remember, it was that seven-mile walk to Emmaus, so two-and-a-half-hour sermon. And He appears again in the evening. Does this set a pattern for God's people, for meeting with Christ throughout the entire Lord's Day, i.e. morning and evening worship. Well, the early church certainly thought so. Of course, it was already a pattern on the Jewish Sabbath to have morning and evening worship associated with sacrifice. But I think Jesus is reinforcing that pattern. The day will come when the sacrifices of the temple come to an end. But God's people will continue to worship morning and evening. It was the cut, <coughs> excuse me, it was the custom of the early church 
to meet with Jesus on resurrection day, morning and evening. I think we should pay attention to that. But this fifth appearance of Jesus in the evening is unique because it's the first time Jesus appears to the apostles and the other disciples all at once. Now previously, they've heard the scattered reports of Jesus' appearance to an individual or a small group, but they wrote off what the women had to say as a bunch of nonsense, an idle tale. They're just maniacal women. Who can trust them anyway? And Peter, he's been so sad that who knows if he actually really saw Jesus. He just, I don't know if he can be trusted here. There are still doubts in them among the whole body as to whether all of this is real. Are those claiming encounters with Christ just dreaming it up? Is this a hallucination? Evidently, Thomas is so convinced that all this resurrection talk is just wishful thinking. He's not even willing to be present. Now, Thomas is not here this morning to defend himself. We don't know exactly why he wasn't present. But later, we know he will insist that even if Jesus has appeared to all the rest, he will not believe unless he sees in Jesus' hands the mark of the nails and so forth. Unbelief is clearly present in Thomas. But Thomas, unfortunately, gets all the negative press. They're all unbelieving. They're all filled with doubts. As we keep reading, it's very obvious that every single one of them is culpable of this same sin. And nevertheless... Jesus shows up. He comes when they're not at their best, when they're not evidencing the fortitude of their faith in the face of trial. He draws near to them in this moment of great and pervasive weakness. And as He stands there suddenly, notice what He says. Verse 36. Peace. To you. Now, this is a normal greeting in a Jewish or even a Middle Eastern culture. The Jews greet one another with the words shalom. The Muslims say salam, but, but they both mean peace. Now, but while this is the common cultural greeting, one that even the scarcely religious will use, I don't think Jesus is just saying, hey guys, Good to see you. Yes, it's conventional in the choice of words, but the circumstance is not conventional at all. To whom is Jesus speaking? And what do we know about their recent conduct? Well, Jesus is talking to His followers, the majority of whom just ditched Him in His hour of greatest trial. They were scattered as He predicted they would be. They all insisted, every one of the apostles, We will not fall away. And every one of them broke their promises. They have shamefully abandoned Christ. Only John shows up at Golgotha, the site of the crucifixion. And while John and the women were willing to go and see Jesus there hanging on the tree, they don't think victory is coming. Cowardice, unbelief, horrible sin has been manifested by this collective group. And right now they're still terrified. That's why the doors are locked. Further, every resurrection report thus far, and there have been four of them, everyone has been met with doubts. There's excitement, 
There's a willingness to maybe entertain some hope, and yet skepticism still dominates their hearts. No one is remembering the words of Jesus. And one might think, considering how greatly these believers have fallen, running away, denying Christ, captive to fear, not remembering the Word, and disbelieving even right this minute, one would think Jesus would appear and then rebuke them all. He's done that before, right? He rebuked them all after He calmed the storm. He rebuked Peter when Peter began to walk to Him on the water and then looked at the wind and waves and began to sink. He rebuked them when they couldn't drive out a demon from a boy and he came down from the men of transfiguration. He rebuked them multiple times for not understanding his words. One might think right here a rebuke is in order and it would surely be the first thing Jesus says. But it isn't. Instead, Jesus comes among them and says, Peace to you. Now, dear friends, there can be no peace if Jesus hasn't pardoned their sin. And there's always a temptation in us to think in our worst moments, I have out the grace of Jesus. But they haven't done that. Jesus comes to them in a spirit of forgiveness. He comes to them delighting in mercy. He comes knowing their frames, remembering that they are but dust. They have faltering hearts. They have frail dispositions. They are prone to wonder. And yet He loves them anyway. He went to the cross to redeem them. They are His people. (coughs) They are the very ones who were upon His heart as He went to that cursed tree. And He put away the punishment they were due. He cleansed them of their transgressions. They have now a free, wholly undeserved pardon. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, they don't need to put away their doubts and repent of their sin. But Jesus' manner with them is to first assure them of His love, of His unbroken relationship with them. Jesus' greeting shows us the priority of God's grace God doesn't show grace to us because we've measured up to His grace. Because we've earned something. No, we love God because He first loved us. We were dead and ruined. But by grace we have been saved. And that's exactly what Jesus is illustrating here when He comes and He says, Peace to you. Brethren, what a tender moment this is. Do we see the heart of our Savior who will draw near to sinners even to those with great sin, and yet tell them who believe in Him, you have peace. How could we draw back from a Savior like this? Because He hasn't changed. He is the same. The devil wants all of us to believe that our Father is an ogre, that Jesus is put out with us, and we are miserable worms who could never have ongoing communion with God. Well, we are miserable worms in ourselves. But Jesus welcomes the weak. The Father gave His Son for the slipping, the needy sinner who yet looks to Christ for salvation. Brethren, I want you to see here the kindness of Christ. And if you are slipping, if you're in a backslidden state, 
Will you see that Jesus welcomes those who struggle and He proclaims peace to the one who trusts in Him for life? May the forgiveness that Christ brings cause us to worship Him. But then secondly, see with me now, Jesus is knowledge. Jesus is knowledge. Jesus stands among them with a greeting of peace. But Luke honestly reports, verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Again, they've heard that He lives, but they can't wrap their minds around this. His presence is startling. How do we put that in our language? It scared the liver out of them. They were terrified. We would have been scared too. We're right there sharing stories, maybe eating a meal, and poof, there's Jesus. Do you imagine? Can you imagine how terrified you would be? It's one thing for someone else to see Jesus. It's totally different for Jesus just to show up. Indeed, their assumption, because of what they clearly see are new properties in Jesus' resurrection state, is that this has to be a spirit, a ghost. The gut reaction to the supernatural and the fact that they have not seen a glorified, transformed person risen from the dead. The resurrections that Jesus has performed earlier on Lazarus and others wasn't a resurrection like this. It was a return to life, but a return to life under the curse. So there's no way they're thinking he's substantial, but he is. He has a real body. He enjoys a tangible, earthy existence. But as they encounter it, all kinds of doubts are flooding their minds. And before Jesus addresses the spirit versus physical concept, He demonstrates that He knows their hearts. Look at verse 38. And He said to them, Why are y'all troubled? Why do doubts arise in y'all's heart? Now, Jesus could probably tell by the look on their faces that they were greatly alarmed. But the sense of the question, why are y'all troubled, is why are you all in an ongoing state of alarm? That wouldn't simply address a facial expression, but a heart in perpetual panic. And then the second question probes deeper to the thoughts of these people standing in His presence. Literally, why are questionings? Why are arguments or uncertainties or disbelieving reasonings continuing to go up in y'all's heart? Now, no one in the group has spoken yet. They are rocked with fear. They're dismissing the possibility of beholding a real and flesh Jesus. Since they were just in a discussion about the reports they heard about Jesus being alive, one would think that they were ready to see Him and accept it as the truth. But they don't do that at all. It reminds us of us. We could be having a conversation about sinful anger, and we shouldn't do it, and then one of our children does something, and boom, we explode. We could be having a conversation about anxiety and how it's bad, and then news comes, and we're full of it. They're exactly like us. They don't expect Jesus to be raised. They don't expect that He would keep appearing. They are skeptical. They have to be persuaded. And as Jesus appears, He goes right to the core of their doubt. Indeed, what's shocking is Jesus appears to them anyway, in spite of their doubts. 
Now he's about to take them through some compelling evidence that he lives. They might understand and believe. <clears throat> but at this point, I simply want us all to realize that the Lord Jesus knows the disquietings of soul going on within you. Jesus knows this, the things that we say we believe, and we actually do believe, but are struggling to live like we believe them. You follow me? <clears throat> Jesus knows precisely what is going on in your heart. Now, to some, this is a terrifying thought. The one through whom the world was made, the one to whom we all owe allegiance and before whom we will stand as a judge, He is peering into your heart. You may try to hide things. You may make excuses about your motives. You may gloss over your dark thoughts. You may make light of the sins and doubts that plague you. But while you try to hide these things from your parents and your siblings and your children and your elders and your friends, you will never escape the scrutinizing gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the believer in Christ, dear friend, this is actually a comfort to us. How so? Jesus sees your weaknesses and He loves you anyway. Jesus knows you in a way that no one else ever will. Jesus is able to address the doubts that are bubbling up within you, maybe that you can't even articulate. Now here in this text, Jesus does this as He comes near with this physical presence. Today at church, while Jesus is at the right hand of the Father on high, He still comes near to address us by His Spirit. He spends His Spirit to illumine your mind with certain truths and to bring you the Scripture you need to remember in your time of struggle. He brings... Conviction by the Holy Spirit on other believers to call you or write you or text to you or tell you the very thing you need to hear. In a remarkable working of His providence, the Lord Jesus shows He knows our hearts because He speaks to our hearts exactly the stuff we were thinking. And He does it through sermons. Through the years, I've had countless people speak to me about how the sermon preached was tailor-made to address a heart issue. I tell you, beloved, that is not me. I do not have spy cameras in your houses. I am not reading your journals. I have not set up a sophisticated network of informants to report to me weekly on the stuff you're saying that reveals your heart. No, Jesus is speaking as the Word is proclaimed to your troubled hearts. He's coming to you in your doubt. <clears throat> because the Word itself is living and active. Hebrews 4.12 The Word is alive. The Word is doing stuff. Jesus knows our burdened hearts and He can cast out all of our gloom, all of our spiritual weakness with His heart-searching Word. He comes to comfort us in our weak state. <clears throat> 
And another thing we've repeated, we've seen, is as he comes to the believers, the believers here don't look very flattering. They are not shining examples in this moment. Doesn't that add credibility to the gospel message? These folks are just like the rest of humanity. They have to be persuaded by the divine presence. And wonder of wonders, Jesus is willing to do that. Jesus is willing to take these slow of heart, weak-minded, spiritually dense people and show them the truth. That leads thirdly to Jesus' condescension. (coughs) Excuse me. After addressing His terrified followers' unspoken thoughts, Jesus now takes action to help them understand the true physical nature of His resurrection. He's not a, a spirit that is a wispy, insubstantial being. Paul will later tell us that Jesus is the last Adam. Now, He's a spiritual being as the last Adam, but that didn't mean a being with no body. It means He was full of the Spirit. And if we go back to the first Adam, Adam didn't exist in a ghost-like state in the garden. The first man was made out of the ground. He was earthy. He was made to enjoy physical things. God made everything to look at pretty that could be appreciated, and it was good to eat. It was pretty and tasty. That mattered. And if Jesus is the last Adam, the biblical message is that He will overcome the very things the first Adam did to bring us into ruin and destruction, namely sin and death. And He will bring regeneration to this cursed world and reverse the effects of the curse. That begins not with a ghost-like existence, but with a bodily resurrection. Jesus stoops to tell the apostles and disciples here present, verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, emphatic again. They know what Jesus looks like. They've been with Him. So He commands them to look, to investigate with their eyes the hands and feet that they know, which they know were crucified. But then the proof to drive out thoughts of a ghost goes deeper. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus is going out of His way to show them that He's real. He's the very Jesus they've known, a physical flesh and bone Savior with whom they've had a relationship for years. They've heard Him preach. They've seen Him. They've touched Him in the past. And now He appeals to them to use these same senses to prove to them that He has thoroughly conquered death. Now, if these folks are to go forward proclaiming that the Lord Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, and if they're going to be ready to face fierce persecution and be ready even to die for this, they must be overwhelmingly convinced that Jesus is alive, that He's the God-man, that He's whipped death and defeated the devil. And other, otherwise, they wouldn't even do it. Because if Jesus isn't alive physically, we remain in sin. If Jesus doesn't live, we die without hope. If Jesus doesn't live, the curse prevails. The accuser of the brethren is right. We are all dirty and doomed. Furthermore, if Jesus doesn't live, all the Jewish authorities had to do to stop this whole Christian movement was go to the tomb where they sent a guard, they know where it is, and get out the body and say, hey fellas, I don't know what you're talking about, but he's dead. 
The spiritual resurrection idea is a dumb idea because the hostile Jews would have brought an end to everything by producing the body. And wouldn't that serve the interests of the devil? Because it would mean that God's promises have come to naught. Psalm 16 says that the Holy One would not undergo destruction or corruption in the grave. Well, if the grave prevails over Him, Psalm 16 is false. If Jesus isn't alive physically, our faith is vain. But Jesus lives. This is not a spiritual resurrection, which would mean death prevails over all of us forever. Jesus' flesh and bone demonstrate that death is broken, that the curse is shattered, sin has been overcome. And now, beloved, there is hope of a resurrected life. Life is beautiful and powerful and full of glory and earthy as it was in the garden. But only better, with no sin to mess it all up. Jesus is the first fruit of a new age. He's the trailblazer of hope for His people. And it's the hope of final victory that we will escape this fallen existence and be cleansed. Well, that's the message the apostles are to go to convey. And John the Apostle will write at the start of his first letter of this very tangible moment that brings life to believers. 1 John 1.1 That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. John is saying, we are witnesses of Christ's resurrection and we're proclaiming to you, not a myth, not some story we made up, not a delusion of a bunch of crazy people. We are proclaiming the things that really happened, that Christ lives, that you might be saved. Now I want you to think about this moment when Jesus showed them His hands and His feet and invited them to touch Him. If Jesus is a ghost, they can't take hold of Him. They couldn't feel the bones in His hands. Nothing physical would be there for them to grasp. But on the other hand, if Jesus only swooned, which some try to argue, He was crucified, but He wasn't really dead. And He was placed in the tomb, but He's really alive. If He swooned, there would be a real body here, but not a death-defying body. For what would the wounds of Jesus have been like? Well, I tell you, you certainly want to touch them. Wouldn't want to touch them. They would be open sores, oozing stuff we don't like to talk about, fiery red with inflammation and so forth. Indeed, no one with Jesus' wounds would invite you to touch Him if the decay of the flesh still prevailed over Him. Those wounds would have been hypersensitive. When your child skins his or her knee, they don't want you to touch it. They don't want you to clean it. That would have been what it was like here. But the wounds are healed. They, the wounds are present not as angry abrasions, but as signs to us of His love and to His Father of the price paid for our salvation. These wounds are visible that we might forever know Christ alone saved us. He is the conqueror. And all of this evidence confronts the disciples. And then Luke again tells us honestly how they responded. Verse 41, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. 
That is, while they were amazed and overwhelmed, believing and not believing at the same time. They believe it, but it's so mind-blowing, they can't believe it. They are overloaded with truth. They are, as Augustine once put it, flustered with joy, rejoicing and doubting at the same time. But while they're trying to take it in, what is truly incomprehensible, Jesus does one more thing to prove that He is physically alive to them. Verse 41, Have you anything here to eat? He asked. And they gave Him a piece of broiled fish and He took it and ate before them. Why did He do that? Ghosts don't consume physical food. But Jesus is no ghost. He's really alive. Beloved, what are we to make of this? Jesus is going out of His way to remove all the reasons you could come up with for doubt. And brethren, this story is recorded that we might likewise have the doubts removed from our hearts. Listen to the Word of God. Christ can be seen, heard, touched, held. And we can share a meal with Him. And one day, we will. In a state of glory, with resurrected bodies full of substantial life, without weakness, without dishonor, we shall share a real physical meal with the Lord Jesus Christ. These eyes will look upon His nail-scarred hands and we will forever sing the praise of His amazing grace that He came down from heaven to ransom His holy bride, that He took flesh, that He suffered our curse, and He shattered its power, that we might have a path to life and pardon for sin and peace with God. Dear friends, see the kindness of your Redeemer and believe that He has conquered the grave. May His Word be pressed to our doubting hearts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at Your resurrection power that You exercise by raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And we thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your kindness that You would stoop to be so patient with foolish, slow of heart, and forgetful people. Lord, we know that that's our own spiritual condition. Minister in that kindness to us and by Your Spirit, assure us of the truth that we might believe and cling to You by faith. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.